something as we start our study this morning. Can I be a disciple of Christ and not follow him? Can I claim to be a follower of Christ and not follow him, a disciple? Because that is, in fact, what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who follows, who emulates the model, the pattern, the example of Christ. If I claim to be a disciple and not follow the example of Christ, what about that claim? You see, Jesus himself said that he came to serve, not to be served. And in setting for us the right example, for, for modeling for us the right kind of character and the right kind of conduct, he says to those who were around him, I came to serve, not to be served. And Christ himself came as a servant sent by the Father to do a specific thing, to work in a specific way. His work, as we have already identified, is to redeem lost sinners and to recruit and train servants, disciples, followers of Jesus. That's what he came to do. And that's what he's in the process of doing throughout the narratives that we find in the gospel accounts. Jesus came to redeem the lost and to recruit and train disciples who would carry on his ministry following his ascension as he leaves them, the church, us who are part of the body, to then serve. And so as disciples of Christ, we must emulate, we must follow his example. For Christ is not asking us to do anything that he wasn't himself willing to do. That's the beauty about it. I mean, it's one thing for us to sit in a class or to hear someone tell us what we need to do, but Jesus just doesn't hold a class and tell us what to do. He models for us an example. He does for us exactly what he is asking us to do. He models it for us by setting the example, by doing the very things that he wants us to do. And so as we claim then to be disciples... We then commit to the person of Jesus Christ in following or emulating his model, his example, or the standard that he sets for us. That's what a disciple is. So as a disciple, a follower of Christ, which the word follow is a huge word, how is or how would we describe then our work ethic? What words would you use to describe the work ethic that you have in following or emulating the example that Christ set, the model that he left for us. He, being the servant, served and left us an example and a model by which we were to follow, emulate his activity, his character, and his conduct. And as a servant, he then calls us to serve. He calls us to work. So how would we then rate the activity of our work in emulating or following his example? You know, it's one thing to convince somebody, as we often do in a moment of telling people about Christ, that they need to receive Christ. They need to repent of their sin and turn to Christ and place their faith and trust in him and receive them into their heart as their personal Lord and Savior. But then, it seems as if they then sign the dotted line and pray to that prayer and make that kind of commitment to receive Christ as their Savior, it then becomes the task of the responsibility of the staff or the pastors then to now persuade people to serve, to work. 
And I would probably guess that more than likely when most of us in here came to the understanding of the awareness of our need for Christ and to repent of sin, we were more than likely told that salvation is not by works lest any man should boast, for it is the free gift of God and that God gives us salvation. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. We don't deserve it. We don't merit it. And it's a free gift. And so because we're receiving something, We often don't then convey the idea upon that reception of this free gift that now we then exchange that free gift by giving to him our service, our lives, a work ethic. Jesus had high standards in his work ethic. And the reason why he does is because his heavenly father has high standards in his work ethic. And while our society today, many people are trying to get out, as, get out from as much work as possible or to avoid working as much as possible, and we live in a society that basically believes that you owe me everything, I don't have to work for anything, that's being spilled over into the church. But it's not a new pattern, it's not a new problem in the church today, for it is a problem that existed in the church for centuries. doesn't matter what the size of the church, how big or how small, doesn't matter where the church is located, in the burbs or in the city. Every church, I guarantee you, has a problem trying to recruit workers to carry on the ministry that God has called that church to fulfill. And yet we see this morning as a Christ follower, as a disciple, that we have been called to follow the example of Christ. We then are going to be challenged by the very words of Jesus himself as he relays to these people who are, who are challenging his activity, his work on the Sabbath. He's going to tell them, the reason why I'm working is because my father is working. And he reveals to them then the standard of this work ethic. So let's take a look at this text in John chapter 5, beginning with verse 17. I'll ask you once again to stand with me in honor of God's word, stretch our minds, our hearts, our legs, get the, the circulation going a little bit as we honor the word of the Lord this morning. In John chapter 5, verse 17. Let's look at it together. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Father, we stand in honor of your word, and I pray that as we stand and seek to honor you, that you would bless the teaching of your word this morning, that your spirit that resides in the hearts of your people, and as we've gathered in this place of worship, having then exalted you to that rightful place that you rightfully occupy as sovereign king of kings and lord of lords would now bring us into the truths of this word and would bring life transformation that would result in spiritual fruit as we seek to live this place and fulfilling that which your spirit and your word has instructed so use this time use this moment to glorify your son and to equip us as your servants for we ask it in jesus name amen thank you please be seated 
As we've taken a look in John chapter 5, beginning of verse 1, in the last two Sundays, we have seen that Jesus then comes in the northwest part of Jerusalem, and upon entering uh, the northwest region, he comes across a pool called Bethesda, and there's a man who's been laying there for 38 years. This man that's been laying there for 38 years is awaiting for his healing, but because someone else gets there before he does, when the angel dips his finger in the pool, he is unable to receive his cure. Jesus, upon entering into this area called the pool, this pool area where there are large numbers of sick and invalid people, Cherry picks this man out of the crowd and asks them this valuable question, said, sir, would you like to be healed? And he then responds, absolutely, I'd love to be healed, but, and then tells him the reason why he has not received his healing yet, not because of a lack of faith, but because of lack of getting there in time, and he has no help. Jesus then asks, well, if you would like to be healed, yes, then rise, pick up your bed, and walk. And upon that command of the power of the Son of God and because of the activity of God in that man's life for 38 years, this is what you might call a divine appointment where God is working and his Son then becomes an extension of that work and addresses this man, tells him to rise, to pick up his bed and walk, and he is instantly forgiven of his personal sin. He is then, uh, he is then cleansed from the physical condition of that sin. He gains the strength to stand, rolls up his bed, tosses over his shoulder, and begins to walk to the temple. People there are marvel. Jesus disappears. As he's making his way to the temple, he runs across the, the religious police who inquire as to why he is carrying his bed on the Sabbath. It is unlawful for you to do that. He then says, well, there was a guy who was at the pool. I've been there 38 years, and he heals me, and he tells me to, to rise, to pick up my bed, and to walk. And that's what I've done. They are unable to carry the integration any further the man then goes on into the temple to thank God for what God has done and then Jesus and him encounter each other one more time Jesus identifies himself as the man who has brought the cure the personal cleansing of sin and the physical cleansing of the man and he sets him free to go testify which he does back to the to the religious zealots to the legalist who says let me introduce you to this man named Jesus who gave me my healing Upon discovering that it was Christ, I'm sure they more than likely already knew, but now there's proof that it was Jesus. We are learned, we learn in the passage of Scripture that they get enraged, they become angry, and they then, at this moment in the narrative, according to the gospel, according to John, begin to intensify the persecution and become more hostile now toward Jesus than before. And everything's about to change between them and Jesus. The Bible says that they persecute him, they harass him, they begin to hassle him. And it's here that Jesus then, at some particular point, we know, don't know exactly where, he then confronts these accusers. You see, they've accused him of working on the Sabbath. And it's here that Jesus then reveals to them, the reason I'm working on the Sabbath is this. He gives a defense. He gives an argument. And in this defense or in this argument, we learn how Jesus works. We learn his work ethic. And if we learn how Jesus works and when we learn about his work ethics, then it's interesting for us as disciples to know exactly how Jesus worked and what his work ethic is if we are, as his disciples, to emulate or to follow his example. So what is the example that he reveals? What is the example that he argues in his defense as to why he worked on the Sabbath? There are eight things that I want us to look at very quickly. And if we take two minutes to pop, we'll be here 
till about 3 o'clock this afternoon. So just buckle up, we'll go. It's supposed to be a joke, by the way. Okay, thank you. Jesus, first of all, was alert to the Father's activity. We're going to back up a little bit to last week. I'd like to move on, but I can't move on because this helps us in the complete narrative. Jesus was, first of all, alert to the Father's activity. We see in the text that he says, in his defense, in his argument, my Father is working until now. In other words, the Father is working up until now. He's been working the whole time, and he's working up till now, and he's going to continue to work from this point on. We've already discussed last week, and we're not going to you know, go over it again, but in, in, in short, some of us were not here. In that Jesus is, is, is reaching an understanding with these, these legalists. They, they've already started, I guess let me back up, they're starting from a level of, of understanding where they agree on. It's always good when you're given an argument to start on, on an area where you agree on. And he's saying, guys, we agree already about this one thing that God never abdicates his throne. He is always reigning. He is always ruling on the throne. He is a 24-7, 365-day-a-year God. Uh, God, that's, that's kind of God he is. And, and, and in the debate, in the discussion, they talk about Genesis where God rested on the seventh day and he rested from creation. But they have already concluded, they already agree that while Jesus understands and they understand that the Father rested on creation. He didn't stop his activity altogether because God does not, nor does he ever stop working. Because if he ever stopped working, life as we know it would cease to exist. They've agreed upon that. And what Jesus is saying to them is, the reason why I did this activity on the Sabbath is because God has been at work. I know it's the Sabbath, I know what man's rules are, but let me tell you, God has been at work, and because God has been at work, I too am working. So he's saying to them, I am alert to the Father's activity. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am moving, I am walking, I am making this journey on a day-to-day basis, and I am continuously, constantly alert to what God is doing. I see him at work. I see him at work in that man's life at the pool. I see him at work in this conversation. I see him at work in the conversations that are going to come. I see, I am alert, I am continually aware that God is always at work. Now that's an important point for us as we, as we consider being servants and joining God in the activity that he wants to do in and through our lives. Because quite frankly, I think there are times when we think, well, did God take a vacation? Is, is God really working? Because if he was really working, then, then this wouldn't happen, or that wouldn't happen, or I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't be a recipient of this. So God must have, have left his throne and, and, and kind of turned the other, other way while this bombarded me. And that's why I'm dealing with this. It's not reality. God is always at work in your life, in my life, in your marriage, in your family, in your children, in your grandchildren, in our church, in our community, in your Sunday school and life group, God is always at work. And the problem is we are just not continually alert to the Father's activity. We are not aware or alert that he is working. We don't want to recognize that reality, but he is at work. He is a 24-7, 365-day-a-year-on-the-job God. That's the kind of work ethic he has. And aren't you glad that he's that kind of God? He is faithful. He is true. He is always operating, always working, never a moment in our lives in which he's not actively working, ever. I don't care where you are. 
Uh, whether you're at, on the job, whether you're in school, whether you're in a cubicle in an office, whether you're standing at a, at a machine watching something go by, whether you're at the grocery store in Dillon's trying to figure out can you afford the groceries, whether you're in a, a doctor's office hearing some bad news, whether you're in a test, whether you're relating to your children, your grandchildren, we need to be continually, constantly aware that God is working in not just my life, but in everyone's life, even the unbelievers. Because God was at work in this man's life for 38 years, and he wasn't a believer in Jesus. And yet for 38 years, he worked in this man's life to bring him at this particular point, in this moment, this divine appointment between himself and Jesus, God brought the two together, which brought about his conversion and his incredible testimony. God is at work. Be alert to the Father's activity. Number two, we see that Jesus was not only alert to the Father's activity, but he was available to the Father's activity. We see in the next little words that he says to them, not only is my father working until now, but I am working. I am working. Jesus has a work ethic. Why? Because the father has a work ethic. God the Father is 24-7, 365 days a year. Jesus saying, I too am like my father. I am continually, constantly at work. I'm always working. Doing the will of my father. Let me ask you something. Is there ever a moment in your day, seven days a week, 24-7, 365 days a year, when we shouldn't be available to whatever God wants to bring into our lives and invite us to do? The answer is no. We like Jesus, if we were to follow his example, he's saying, I'm available. You know, the reality is, I think, that, that many times the reason why we are not joining God and what God wants to do is we're simply just not available to what he wants to do. I mean, I'm just not interested in that God. I don't really want to go there. I don't want to go through that. I don't want to experience that. I don't want to say that. I don't want to talk to them. We're just not available. And for that reason, we are simply not going with God. We're not joining God in the activity that he wants to do. And as a result of that, we're missing on miraculous moments where the divine encounter with God wants to take place in our lives. And it's the reason why many of us are not experiencing God on a daily basis in these miraculous supernatural activities that he wants to do in all of our lives, not just in the pastor's life, but everyone's life. In any time, in any moment, there's a divine activity. It's never small, and it's never insignificant. Availability is huge. I'm available to go where you want me to go. I'm available to become what you want me to become. I'm available to, to say what you want me to say. I'm available to talk to whoever you bring into my life. I know you're at work in their life and my life, and, and this, this divine encounter is there for a purpose and a reason, and because of that, I'm going to go with you, God. I'm available. Whatever you ask, whenever you ask, whatever you ask, I'm yours. He was not only alert and available, but we see thirdly, he was abandoned to the Father's purpose. This is huge. I think there are many of us who say, you know, I'm aware, I'm alert that the Father's at work, I'm available to him. But you know, I got an agenda. I've got goals. I've got objectives. I've got a strategy. I've figured it all out. And because I've got it all figured out and I have goals and objectives and things I want to see and things I want to do and what I want to become, I'm just not simply abandoned to the purposes of God. But Jesus says in this text, if we were to emulate his example, notice he says in verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. In other words, he doesn't initiate anything. 
And the problem with many of us, we get tired of waiting on God to do what we want God to do. And so what we do is we grab the bull by the corns, we, we sit in the driver's seat, we take the steering wheel, and we move it in the direction that we think God needs to go. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been a part of a group or a church that's done that? The end result is what? It's catastrophic. Compute, completely debilitating. And the consequences can't be blamed on God because God says, hey, you went where you wanted to go. You did what you wanted to do. You said what you wanted to say. You became what you wanted to become. And now you want to blame me for the results? Now, God can work all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But we can't take the initiative and then expect God to join us. God is not a committee guy. God doesn't sit in a business meeting and ask for the majority to rule on anything. God never comes to me and asks me, Charles, what do you want to do for me? He never comes to a church and says, Church, what do you want to do for me? He comes to us, he comes to me, he comes to you and said, this is what I want you to do. And I want you to wait and not take the initiative until I command you to go. And yet too many times we're asking God to bless our plans, to bless our agenda, to bless our strategy, to bless our work when we're going alone and in a complete opposite to where God would have us go. Jesus was abandoned to the Father's purposes. He never took initiative on his own. I mean, you would think that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three and one, the triune God, he's a part of the Trinity, he's God, could take initiative in something. I mean, he's the Son. You would think that the Son has the right by virtue of who he is in the Trinity, to do what he wants to do, and yet he says, I don't initiate anything unless it is in agreement with the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit never initiates anything that isn't with the Father and with the Son, and the Father then leads the Son and the Spirit, and together they operate as one every single time. They never go towards something or to do something without the other two. They don't. And yet, we're guilty of doing that sometimes, are we not? And Jesus said, I'm abandoned to the Father's purposes. Well, he's alert, he's available, he's abandoned, but let's look at number four. He is attentive. He's attentive to the Father's activity. He is, he is attentive to what God is doing. If you notice in the text, he says, I am watching to see what my Father is doing. Notice he says in verse 19, but only what he sees the Father doing. The Son only does what he sees the Father doing. He's watching God at work. Not only am I aware that God is working, but I'm watching where he's at work. I'm watching. Now, some of us in here have been a part of an apprentice program where there's a master carpenter or a master electrician or something like that, and you have someone who comes beside you, and, and you are doing something, and you're showing them exactly what you're doing. Why? Why? Why, why are you showing them what you're doing? Why are they watching you? And if you've been in that, in that position, and you're, you're trying to show them something, and they're looking away, you go, hey, Watch. Especially if you're, you're showing them how to build an airplane, please 
keep your attention on the nuts and bolts and the fine things in airplanes because one of us in here may be on that plane one day and we may want you to be careful as to how you construct one of those, right? I mean, lives are at stake. And so what Jesus is saying, hey, not that I'm an apprentice, but like an apprentice, because you see, in the day of Christ, the occupation of the father often became the occupation of the son, right? And the father showed the son how he did this, and the, the son watched how the father did it so that he can emulate, duplicate the same thing that the father was doing. That's what Jesus is saying here. I'm the son, and I'm standing closely connected with my father, and I'm watching him work. Because when I, when I watch him at work, I know what I'm to be doing. Because I see what he's doing, and I want to do what he's doing even as the son. So he's attentive to what the father is doing. And then notice number five. I want to give you a, a, a different, uh, different point than what's up there. Just completely ignore adaptable to the father's activity. That's a good point, but it's not the point I want to make here. So just erase that from your vision, and I want you to write number five this. Advancing in the father's strength. Advancing in the father's strength. Notice what it says in the text. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. In other words, I'm watching to see what the father is doing, and I simply do what the father is doing. Now, where does his authority and where does his power come from? Where does the power of Christ come from to do the things that he did? Where did the power come from to walk on water? Where did the power come from to raise the dead? Where did the power come from to make the blind see and the, the mute to speak, the lame to walk? Where did that come from? On his own? No, it came from the Father. The Father and Son in sync with the Spirit, that power flowed through His words and through His commands because the Father was at work and Jesus joined God and He spoke and that happened. But the problem is, here, here's our problem. Uh, we say, you know what? Um, <laughs> I can handle this. I don't need you, God. I can handle this. I got strength. I can handle this. I don't really need you for this. So I'm going to operate my own power, my own strength, because I can handle this. Now, I may not be able to handle this. I can move it around. But, you know, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little harder to pick up. So, God, I need you with this. You follow what I'm saying? But if, if, if God were lifting this, and I were to put my arms around it as he put his arms around it, and together we lifted this, do you think we could lift it? I said, do you think we could lift it? Are you sure? I couldn't lift it while I go on my own. That's what Jesus did. And Jesus, yet being equal to the Father, had equal strength with the Father, yet he chose to wait on the Father. And as he joined God together, they had a power that equaled none, even the power of the enemy to try to stop, disrupt, and hinder the work that God was doing through his Son was not sufficient. 
And I wonder sometimes when the enemy gets the upper hand in what we're seeking to do for the Father, the reason why he's able to do that is because we lack supernatural spiritual strength. Because we are doing it on our own without him. I can do all things. I can do all things how? Through Christ. Through Christ. So he, he was very careful to advance in the strength of the Father. Number six, he was anchored in a personal relationship, in personal intimacy. Notice the text, it says... For the Father loves the Son. This is not really new to us, really. Would, is, this, is this new theology? No, because we would agree that more than likely it's, it's, it's reasonable to expect that God the Father who sent his one and only Son sent that one and only Son not only because he loved us, but because he loved the Son. I mean, unless you've had a bad example of a, a human father... Most fathers that I know love their children. They may not express it in, the, in a way that, that, that conveys or communicates that they love their children, but I don't know too many fathers that don't love their children. And so Jesus is giving, I think, some insight in suggesting here that, that in, in going with God and, and doing what God is doing, he's saying, I am anchored in this intimate love relationship with the Father where he and I are connected. It's a love relationship. And because he loves me, there's, there's certain aspects about that relationship that's empowering, that, that sets me free, that sets me on a course of fulfilling and accomplishing that which the Father does. Because he's about to say the reason why he is, is aware of what's going on and the Father joins him and all that is because of the relationship. Now, if you know anything about the life and the ministry of Jesus, you know that there are many times when Jesus retreated to himself and spent a lot of time just between him and the Father. Right? He cultivated that relationship. I mean, you would think that the son, who is the son of God, would be walking 24-7, 365 days a year, just so connected with God, he would never have to spend a moment alone by himself. Right? I mean, they're one. And yet Jesus, over and over and over and over again, in the three and a half years of, of the record of his ministry, you see where Jesus singles out and goes away from the crowd and spends time alone with God. Why? To build that relationship, to connect. We're about to see tonight in John 6 where Jesus is feeling the pressure of the crowd and he retreats for some time alone with the Father. And if Jesus sought to spend time alone with the Father, even though he was the Son, more interconnected than you and I will ever be, should we not do the same? And maybe the reason why we're not alert and available and abandoned and attentive and advancing, because we're not exercising the spiritual discipline of taking time alone to be with God. Let me tell you something, as a pastor, it's real easy to get so involved in serving that you don't connect and justify the lack of connection. And don't look at me like, ah, you can do that? You can do that. And you've done that. 
We go about our day-to-day activity and we don't connect. We don't spend time with God. We're not in communion with him. We're not opening the Bible. We're not connecting. The Spirit's not communicating. We're not reading the word. We're not building an intimate love relationship with the Father. And then we go out and God, God, use me today. You think that's going to happen? Probably not. Why? Well, how are you going to hear him if you're not relating to him? And some of us in here have been Christians for a long time, and we think we just walk by osmosis. I've been married to my beautiful wife for 35 years, but if I spend a month without talking to her, how's that going to go? I said, how's that going to go? But I've got 35 years of relating to her. Why do I need to spend a, a time talking to her now? I, there's not anything that, that she, I know everything there is to know about her. I've been with her 35 years. You know what? There's a lot of Christians just like that. And we wonder why in our senior adult, senior adult years, we're not experiencing the incredible movement of God in our lives and the movement of God through us. Because we think we've heard it all, seen it all, know it all, related it all, and we don't need to stay in connection with God. That's bogus. That's a lie from hell. You can't hear him and see him and know him and go with him unless you're walking with him. And you can be just as dead spiritually at 70 years old, having been a Christian for 60 years as a brand new believer who doesn't know Christ at all and miss him completely and live a stale, miserable, frustrated Christian life. It happens. And you get into a routine and a rhythm and you get up and you come to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. For what? It's the same it was last week as it was the week before. It's the same it's going to be next week. There's no purpose. There's no drive. There's no nothing. Because you're not connecting on an intimate, personal love relationship with a father who created you, who saved you, and who wants to use you to accomplish incredible things each and every day of your life. And you're missing it. Then notice the next point in point seven was he was aware of the father's present activity. It says, interesting that Jesus says to them and to us, for the father loves the son. And because he loves him, notice he shows him all that he himself is doing. I mean, it's, it's interesting that Jesus says there's nothing that God hasn't done or isn't doing or isn't going to do that I'm not aware of. I mean, we would say, hey, that's good. So what are we about? What's our work? What's our work? Our work is to what? To redeem a lost world. What Jesus did, we're to follow him, we're to emulate him, we're to do what he did. He came to redeem a lost world. I know what you're thinking. I can't redeem a lost world. I'm not perfect. Only perfection can redeem a lost world. And I know some of you in here and a little bit about... Most of you, not everyone in here, but I would venture to say that no one in here is perfect. Any perfect person in here? Any. Look around. You see anybody? Just want you to know you're sitting around a bunch of people that are just flat out sinners. They're, they're not perfect people. No such thing as perfect people other than one person. His name was Jesus. Only he could redeem a lost world through his death on the cross taking upon himself sins that he didn't commit and dying in our place. Only Christ could do that. So how do we then join God in this redemptive thing? 
we become his witnesses. We do what the man at the pool did. After he received his healing, he went back to those guys and said, let me introduce you to Jesus. Here he is. Here's Jesus. Look what he did to me. He gave me healing. When we do that, we join the activity of God and the work that Christ did in the redemption of a lost world. That is our work as a disciple to follow the example of Jesus. And yet I wonder how many lost people surround us on a day-to-day basis and we're totally oblivious to God's activity in their lives. I had the opportunity this week to just ask a young lady who was waiting on us at a breakfast with another pastor if I could pray with her. That's all I asked. And she broke down. And God was obviously at work in her life. And that was a divine appointment. It was a divine appointment. Now, I didn't walk on water and I didn't raise the dead, but it was a divine appointment. And if I had not listened and joined God in that activity, I'd have missed an opportunity to see God miraculously work in a waitress's life in a Denny's. Where can God work? Anywhere. With whom can he work? With anyone. With whom is he working? Everyone. No activity of God is large or small. It's all divine appointments. And God wants to use you and me every day just like that. What, we walk around like this? We walk around like this? Or we walk around like this? Not going to do it. And we're missing it. We're missing it. We're missing it. What are you missing? Oh, you mean God wants to use me? Yep. I don't have much. Doesn't take much. With him, you've got all you need. You just got to go with him. Trust him. Be alert. Be available. Be abandoned to his purpose. Approach what God is doing, not only in your own power and your own strength, but in his power and his strength. As you watch God, what he's doing, you just simply do what he's doing. You don't need any training. You don't need any more equipping. You've got all that's necessary to watch God do incredible, miraculous, life-transforming things through you. And as a disciple, I follow his activity. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. 
Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com.